All right. Can everyone hear me? Thank you for that yeah, enthusiastic response. My name is Reeve Hamilton. I'm a reporter for the Texas Tribune. Uh, thank you on behalf of the Tribune for coming to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival and uh, especially for coming to this panel on the completion crisis. Uh, we ask that you, you know, turn yourself on completely off and if you still do that but want to tweet, then it just be silent and you use the hashtag TribuneFest to describe the whole festival and the hashtag TTF higher ed to uh, refer to things that are happening on this track specifically. Uh, let's get going with uh, introductions. We're going to do about a 40-minute discussion up here, and then there'll be Q&A for 20 minutes or so. And to, to do that, you, you go to one of the microphones in either of the aisles. So now that you all know that. And, and when we get to the question part, please make sure your questions are short and also questions. This is a, we're working on it. Hey, Reeve, you do the same. <laughs> yeah, it's my panel. <laughs> I'll do whatever I want. Uh, well, let's start here at the end. We have Diana Natalicio, the president of the University of Texas at El Paso, a position she has held since 1988. Uh, but she's been at the university before that. She was the university's vice president for academic affairs, the dean of liberal arts, and chairwoman of the modern languages department. She has also served as chairwoman of the American Council for Education Board and as a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. So please welcome President Natalicio to the stage. She is next to what uh, may be a familiar face to those of you that are familiar with this campus. This is President Bill Powers, who has served as president of the University of Texas at Austin since 2006. Before that, he was dean of the university's School of Law. He has also worked as a legal consultant with the US Congress, the Brazilian legislature, and his second favorite legislature, the Texas legislature. Third. Yeah, well, first. That's wrong on my bio, yeah. sorry. No, no. Next to him, we have Brian McCall, who is the chancellor of the Texas State University System. He's held that position since 2010. Before that, he was in the Texas House, where he was chairman of the House Calendars and Ways and Means Committee, and he was a member of the House Higher Education Committee. Please welcome Brian McCall. Next to him, we have Renu Couture. Uh, Chantident Couture is, uh, serves in the dual position of University of Houston System Chancellor and University of Houston President. She is the first woman to hold that dual position. She's been doing it since January 2008. Prior to joining us here in Texas, she served as provost and senior vice president at the University of South Florida. And I believe she's also the chair-elect of the American Council for Education. So please welcome President Couture, Chancellor Couture. And then finally, we have uh, Dan Branch, who is a state representative from District 108 in the Texas House. He has been and representing that district since 2003, and he is the chairman of the House Higher Education Committee, and he also serves on the Calendars and Pensions Committee. Please welcome Dan Branch. So the, the title of the panel is The Completion Crisis. Uh, you know, that, uh, I think in the, if anyone was here from the previous panel, there was a lot of discussion about the need to get students out of college more. Uh, and I was wondering if we could start with uh, Chancellor McCall, since you have seen this from both the legislative side of the fence and the institutional side of the fence, uh, how much of a crisis is there and are the perceptions different depending on which, which side you're on? Well, it's certainly a crisis if you don't complete and you've borrowed money and worked hard and not gotten where you need to be. 
uh, to do what the goal originally was. Is it a crisis that you don't graduate in four years? I don't think so. I think that's a 1960s and 70s concept in many cases for many students. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, when mom and dad paid and you didn't work except maybe in summer, and the age that you started was 18 and the age that you finished was 21, that, that might be a crisis if you didn't do it in six years. But today, with the average age of a student in the mid-20s, and in our case, in the Texas State University system, the eight institutions in our system, the average, 73% uh, of the students work. Uh, and that is almost full-time, and that is year-round. And so, uh, is it a crisis? Well, I don't think so. Not for the average student today. If they graduate in five years, six years, we celebrate it. Has your perception of that change as you've moved over from that House Higher Education Committee over into uh, the position of chancellor? Well, you know, when I was in, in, in the legislature, we had a goal that Raymond Paredes championed, and that was to increase access to higher education, which is a good and worthy goal. We could have a 100%, near 100% graduation rate in six years in Texas if we did a number of things. One, if we only admitted students who don't get sick, whose children don't get sick, whose spouses don't get sick, whose parents don't get sick, who are in the top 10% of their graduating class, um, who uh, don't transfer because, uh, if we don't accept transfers because they're not included in the calculation, if we don't take community college students because they're not included in the calculation. There are a number of things we could do to get that rate up. But if the goal is access, which it is, um, we're doing pretty well. Let me just state that in our system, in, in four of the universities, we're up 21% in the past 10 years in graduation rates in six years, 51%, 48% at Sol Ross. Uh, so, you know, we're in 10 years' time, when Raymond Perretta set these goals, I think all universities are doing the right trend line, something we can be proud of. Well, Representative Branch, uh, as someone who's in the legislature, how, uh, and who has been working, I think, to, <laughs> for a few more months, you, you've been working on sort of strategies to try to improve yeah, outcomes, I yeah. believe. Uh, how how crisis-like or dire do you see the, the current state of things? Well, I think it's, 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 it's I guess it's you know, glass half empty, glass half full. When I first came in, I think we had a million uh, around about in, in 2003, I think we had about a million two in our higher education system, including our community colleges. And, that, and now we're north of a million six. So, uh, you know, 50% type increases um, um, are, 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 that's a really good thing. So I think if you look at all our indices, our closing the gaps, uh, our commissioners here in the audience, and, and, and we've, worked hard and we're way ahead on, on completions, but that was sort of a, you know, getting back to average. Uh, we're, we're very close on access on enrollments on the participation goal for 2015 coming up next year. And so um, we're doing much better. The problem is, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, while we've held our own on uh, six-year graduation rates, we've gone from a rank of 17 nationally to a rank of about 35th nationally just in the last three years. So other states are doing better. So part of this uh, issue, not only is it should, you know, our policies be student-oriented and I think more outcome-oriented, but uh, we've got to make sure that we keep up with the competition, not just among other states, but other countries, of course. And so 
there's a financial aspect to this. And so we're with limited public funds, uh, every time a student takes, uh, there's, I don't think there's a crisis. I agree with the chancellor. My, and by, by the way, I'm, I, I think we have really outstanding leaders. One of the benefits for me of working and getting to work with leaders like this is that uh, they are truly out, outstanding and recognized in many ways. And so I think uh, my colleagues here are all working really hard to uh, improve their numbers. And I think we've changed the culture in Texas. Um, we, we now have a focus on outcomes, particularly acute in our community colleges, which is actually the area where we needed the most improvement in terms of completions. Um, but, but to me, uh, when you look at our, uh, the cost of having someone stay, you know, six, seven years, as opposed to getting out early, the cost of that family, to that person, the debt, the cost of taxpayers, that, that, that scholarship could have gone to someone else. Uh, to me, that's where one aspect of a, of a crisis can be seen is that we just don't have enough public funds to allow for a culture that takes much longer. Um, and I'd, I'd say the other aspect is at some point we need a workforce. Uh, the the, uh, the demographers are telling us that, you know, where in the future, 60-some uh, percent of the jobs are going to require some sort of uh, certificate, some sort of credential. And we're not nearly uh, at that level. You know, in Texas, we have our, our workforce is about 34% uh, credentialed. And so we, we do have a, a ways to go. And if we all believe that uh, the future is a knowledge economy and that we therefore higher skilled jobs bring greater fruits for no, not only our state, but our individuals and families, then, then we need to be on, get on with the, 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 the mission of getting people out in, in as most efficient way as we can. I mean, our, our average statewide for six years is 49 uh, we have a 49% graduation rate in six years. So, um, you know, uh, I think we can do much better. And uh, Massachusetts, I think, is around 68%. And so I just think that uh, we have to do better, and we have to do better uh, with more velocity. And, that, and that's why we've tried to have uh, programs and policy initiatives to try and encourage that. Well, and... and uh, President Natalicio, sort of, no matter sort of what the legislature thinks, sort of culturally in the country, uh, hasn't completion and the speed with which you complete students been a fairly strong driver and reputation? If you look at the U.S. News and World Report rankings, for example, so does that uh, does that add to the sort of sense of urgency, or should we be thinking about that differently? Well, I think it does. I, I think it creates. Uh, climate where everyone's trying to compete to raise their graduation rates. And as you know, I've been very concerned about the use of certain metrics uh, to define a crisis, and graduation rates is one of them. I think it grossly understates what's actually happening, particularly in public higher education, um, because graduation rates only capture a small slice of the, of the total enrollment and the total number of graduates. It only captures those students who start and complete their degrees at the same institution. And U.S. News and World Report and IPEDS and all of these other organizations that gather data don't bother to say that. And so what we're doing really is understating um, the, the number of success stories that we have to count. And having said that, I mean, I think the job isn't finished, but I think we have made tremendous progress over the past 10 years. At UTEP, for example, our enrollment is up about 50%, but our degree completions are up doubled, 100%. So, you know, we have become a lot more efficient in helping students graduate, but we also are 
trying to ensure that those students who don't happen to begin their work at UTEP get as much attention and as much priority as those who do start at UTEP. So the transfer students from El Paso Community College or elsewhere um, are primary targets for the same kinds of program reinforcement that we provide all of our students. And they're graduating in due course because the community college and UTEP have begun over the past 20 years to develop strategies that are vertically integrated. I think one of the keys here is to ensure that there's a college-going culture from the beginning, from elementary school on, and that's what one of the things we've worked on. Because if you don't have a pool of high-aspiring and highly prepared students to come into the university, then you're going to have much more difficulty trying to get them through uh, to completion. So I think this is a very, like so many issues, this is a really complex issue. And it often gets translated into a single metric like graduation rates. And then everyone wrings their hands because they think everything's failing. And it's really not. So I would agree uh, with my colleagues. This is not, uh, you know, it's not a crisis, but we must do better. And I think, you know, the thing we need to remember is that public higher education has a very different profile from private higher education. Private higher education rarely accepts transfer students. Most of their students start and complete at the same institution. Public higher education is open. And with that, we, we take a lot more at-risk students, if you will. Um, and those students then um, are going to have to deal with a lot of the issues that, that Chancellor McCall talked about, uh, life issues. Uh, they're very different from the students who typically pass through uh, a private institution. So there are many, many issues to be dealt with, and I think we need to celebrate our victories. I think we need to communicate better to the public that indeed a lot of good work is being done because I think this whole climate of negative uh, thinking about higher education is really quite destructive. Well, President Couture, you've said that you're not satisfied with your completion rates at University of Houston, especially as you uh, transition and grow into tier one university, uh, you know, uh, what's a level that you would be happy with? I think in 2013, you were at 55% uh, for the six-year rate. What, what would you like to get to, and, and how can you, what strategies are you using to change things? So, so the bottom line is, as Chairman Branch said, um, whether it's four-year, six-year, eight-year, ten years, bottom line is that we have only 39% of the adults with post-secondary education here in Texas. By 2018, we need to have 63% um, people who are going to need post-secondary education uh, in order to, to, to be functional, in order to have jobs. So we definitely, regardless of the time it takes, we have to make sure that the students do complete college. Now, I can give you six excuses um, as to why is it that uh, you know, we can't do something about them, and I can give you six reasons why there is room for us to do better. So, for, for instance, um, and I'm going to give a lot of credit to Chairman Branch because at the last session, I know he led it and the legislature passed the fixed four-year tuition. We took that along with many other incentives that we have on campus, packaged it together. And this year, we, we sold that plan to the parents financially because if you are two years early, you get into the marketplace, what does that do to you? And we sold it to the students by saying, that you don't have to you know, take 150 credit hours that you're taking right now to graduate. If you stay focused, you can do 120 credit hours. And if you like our campus so much, you want to stay six years, great. 
you know, we'll make a plan for you so you can take six more credit hours and you can do bachelor's and master's in the same time period. And as a result, we have 60% of the freshmen who have bought this concept called UHN4. They have signed the contract that they will graduate in four years. Now, we continue the retention rates of today. I know that our graduation rate will cross over all of the national thresholds. So let me give you another example here, too. I visit every freshman class at the beginning of the semester. So I visited 17 classes so that I can reach to freshmen in a much smaller setting. And I ask them, I say, is there anybody here who has come with a plan saying that I'm going to go to University of Houston, have fun, you know, go to parties, and will drop out? And never a single student has raised hand. Okay. Then I ask them to That's take a look. That's a silent majority. <laughs> then I ask them to take a look to the person sitting to your right and keep your eyes there. And then I would say, think about it. Move six years from now. Six years, not four, six. And I say, either you or that person sitting next to you is graduating. I said, that is the statistics. I said, but you can do some things and I can do something. And let's talk about it and let's make a pact today that you will not drop out from here. And one of the things I do is I give them my personal email and I say, before you even think about dropping out, call me. Because so that we can figure it out, what is it and how we can keep you here. And the reason I do it is because there is an issue about expectations too. And, and I think President Natalicio mentioned that, that we have to create that expectation. And I think that is part of it. But the part of it is also income, educational background. We know all of those factors are there. But even after you take all other factors out, I think there is a still institutional inefficiency, institutional cultural paradigm, I think institutional commitment, that there is a room for us to do more. So my message to my faculty and staff has been, we're doing great. But how is it possible that individually we can do great and collectively we can be mediocre? So let's make sure that we finish that gap, get at least to the national average, and then we start talking about other things because we are serving two populations and we have to serve both of them. 18 years old who come to the campus and who want to graduate, who are focused because they're full-time. 96% of his students are full-time. Now, of course, some things will go wrong, that's fine, but then we are also serving being in a cosmopolitan city. We are serving the population who wants to access institution at any given time, and we have to serve both of them, and we have to make sure that there is a pathway to completion, not just access to both of those populations. Well, and uh, sort of getting back to a point that Chancellor McCall was making earlier, is uh, you know, one of the seemingly easier ways to get both of those students that are looking to their left and their right out is just change who the students are, right? I mean, how do you make dramatic change without changing the culture or the type of students you're serving? Yeah. Which is something I know you're trying to do. Right. Well, you, you cannot. I mean, one of the, the, the bottom line and one of the fundamental principles of American higher education, and I have been in other higher education systems, is that we commit to provide access to anybody at any point in time with any kind of aptitude that they come. As long as I say, you have fire in your belly, you're welcome to come to our campus. And we graduate the same time, 86-year-old and a 17-year-old, you know. So that's the beauty of public higher education. And we committed to that. But the thing is, you cannot ignore that America needs both pieces of higher education. You need to have the bottom of the pyramid, meaning a very well-qualified functional population and, but you also need the top of the pyramid, that is the people who are thinking absolutely innovatively, whether it's research, discoveries, instruction, because American higher education and America 
Where we are today in higher education, we are at the top of the world. Everybody seeks to come here. The talent wants to come here. We have to maintain that position too. So both are necessary and both can be delivered. You just don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Well, and President Powers, you're in an interesting position because you're, if John Sharp's not here anymore, I can say you're here at the, since you're the most elite public university in the- You can say it. <laughs> I'm not so sure about it. Historically, perhaps. Yeah. And, and yet you, you have, you've committed to about a little more than half of the students here graduate in four years, and you have said that you would like to get that up to 70% by 2017, which with the, you know, you're taking in the top 7% of the state's high school graduates. With that population, how can you tweak it that much in that short amount of time? Is, is that actually a doable goal? Well, I do think it's a doable goal, you know, I, and I think we're making progress toward that. Uh, I think we'll get to that. 70% if we improve it to 68% and it takes another year. We're, we're making a lot of progress on that. Um, I would say a lot has been said that I think is very sound and that I agree with. I, uh, I do think uh, there are really two issues going on and, and, and our situation faces one of them, but the completions I think is a crisis. In the aggregate, we're not completing enough of our uh, population to have an AA or a bachelor's or a master's at, at every level. Um, and institutions are different, individual people are different, uh, but in the aggregate, I do think that's a, a, a crisis. Uh, we've done a good job on access, made a lot of progress. We have not done a good job on completions. And access is so that people can get completion. I, I think, uh, Chairman Branch has focused on that. I think we need to focus on it. Uh, the student who starts and doesn't complete is a tragedy. The student who starts and goes in the fall and then works in the spring and summer, goes in the fall, works in the spring and summer, transfers but completes is a success. Uh, I want to get to the keeping, how we keep score in a, in a bit because I think it's important. That is a success. Um, that's really not our issue. Our issue is a resource issue. That is, if somebody stays longer, it, uh, it, other, there's not room for other people to come in. It really isn't a time issue. It's a credit issue. Um, and we have we're taking 145, 150 credit hours. That's using our resources. It's using their resources they can navigate through the system better and focus in on it. It's not their fault, by the way. Degree plans are too complicated. Uh, they're too specified and narrow. So if you got the, if you switch a little bit, this course doesn't count for that little sub major. Uh, we've got to have a lot more flexibility in it so that students can navigate that. We've got to do a better job on that. That's a resource uh, issue. In our ability to get to a 70% graduation rate, uh, we're almost there on five-year graduation rates. Actually, we're very we close on, on four-and-a-half-year graduation rate. So we don't see it as going from 58 to 70, 54 to 70 in, in four-year graduation rates. We see going from four-and-a-half years to four years. That's the way we look at it. It's a, it's a navigating through our system. Issue. And I think we're making a lot of progress on that. It is 
critical that we keep doing that. You hear it from, from the transfer issue, the student who goes in the fall but not the spring. Um, How we keep scoring is like that example I like to use. Think of what tennis would be like if a double fault automatically lost the set. The behavior of the tennis player would be completely different. We just keep scoring in a way that uh, does not incent the right behavior out of the students. Uh, we've got to come to grips with what we count as a efficient, well, speaking of uh, changing behavior and incentivizing, I think one of the initiatives that uh, Chairman Branch has been pushing for years is outcomes-based funding, of course, uh, which is this notion of tying a portion of uh, the a school's funding to their performance in terms of completions. Uh, and I think that has gotten a lot of pushback from universities. Is that correct? Well, let me, let me put it this way. I think 19 states now have outcomes-based uh, funding, some sort of outcomes. And we've, uh, we've been, I, I think we've all worked together to try and, you know, I think we're changing a culture here in Texas. And uh, so that takes a little bit of time. And not, that's not an excuse. It's just we're moving in, in that direction. And we did have some success with our, our Texas State Technical College system. It's now gone to completely, 100% based on outcomes and, and it's funded by if you get a successful outcome and, and, and a student in the workplace. Um, our community college system, which is, which is the largest over 50 systems, over 80 campuses, more than half of our 1.6 million students, um, they are now 10% of their funding uh, with a series of metrics that they came and agreed upon, uh, completion at, at a certain uh, point along the way, full completion at the associate's degree, various metrics that uh, are now there funding and, and we've had testimony before uh, the commissioner and the coordinating board and for our committee that, that this is going well. I mean, it's being adopted uh, readily and, and uh, so I expect that the trend will continue. With the four years, we, we uh, didn't get that accomplished. We did get it in the base budget, at least as an option. And, uh, and, and then ultimately there was a, the pushback in the appropriations process. I'm hopeful that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe tweak the metrics and that um, some of my colleagues here on this panel will help uh, be champions for that in, uh, in the coming session to get that done. I mean, I think we all agree that uh, at the end of the day, as, as President Power said, we do have to have these completions. I mean, that's the success story. And it's, it, while partial education, there's value to that, it's harder to measure. And so in a society where you do have to measure with limited resources, then we do have to show efficacy. And the way you do that is a credential. And of course, that you have to maintain your quality. This all this all presumes quality within the process. But the quantitative analysis is that we need more credentials, as, as President Chancellor Couture has, has said. And so uh, we we have to have uh, some of the funding, the incentive, uh, as as President Power said about tennis. I think you know, when you change the incentive, uh, the, the 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 behavior tends to change. And so we're trying to do that without unintended consequences, but have people say, hey. It's not just about the 12th day of classes and how many derrieres, uh, with all due respect, to our college show. students, yeah. uh, how many people show up at the, the, the 12th day of class. What really matters is, uh, did they walk across the stage at this tremendous ceremony that uh, UT has here every May 
that's a fabulous celebration of the completions at uh, this, you know, our, one of our flagship campuses. Well, maybe to the institutional uh, leaders, you know, President Natalicio, have you seen a workable model for outcomes-based funding that you think would be actually accomplish the goals it's setting out to accomplish? Well, I very much believe in, in creating incentives, but I think the, the critical point here again is what are the metrics that you're going to use uh, to determine those incentives? Because the unintended consequences are often very serious. One of the things that clearly can help you improve your graduation rate is not to admit any students who are viewed as at risk. So you eliminate all the students whose profiles don't fit the kind of traditional completers. Um, students come in a lot of packages. And so the metric has to be aligned with a realistic opportunity for an institution to do the right thing, to create access, to create opportunities for students, whatever their profile, and then help them achieve those goals. And it's very difficult, I think, to identify metrics that work. One size doesn't fit all. And so the result of that is that I've seen institutions raise their, for example, SAT for admission uh, in order to eliminate some of the at-risk students. And those are the very students uh, who have perhaps huge potential not identified in an SAT test. And so what you're doing is you're using a test whose predictive power, at least at UTEP, is not at all strong. In fact, it doesn't predict anything, uh, these tests at UTEP. And so the result then is that you basically squander a talent on the basis of a test that you don't believe in. How can, how can we justify doing that in public higher education? That student, just because of that test, doesn't deserve uh, to be sent away uh, on the basis of a test that, that hasn't been proven to, to be successful predictor. So from my perspective, in, incentives are great. And I think internally, as, as Chancellor Couture said, internally we set incentives for our people. We do that. We hold people accountable within the institution. And we see completions increase. We see the results of working closely with the community college, and we incent those behaviors. But when you start trying to put a template on all institutions, in all settings, serving populations that are very diverse, it's just very hard to do. And so everybody's going to feel somewhat aggrieved by whatever incentive it might be, because there are going to be disadvantages and unintended consequences that none of us like to live with. And I think that's the big, that's the big challenge. One of the things that I think is very interesting that's going on now is to look at predicted graduation rates versus actual, those kinds of things where value added is part of the equation because I think that's a, that's a very promising uh, sort of strategy. Um, but there are many other ways in which I think we can set uh, these kinds of incentives. From my perspective, um, I would be pleased to do something with incentive funding because I think it would be an interesting experiment. But I think we have to be careful not to, not to use these incentives as penalties, if you will, on institutions that are accepting the risk um, of taking on students for whom um, everyone has a sense of challenge. And so, from my perspective, let's go with it, but let's keep the, the impact at a manageable level, because otherwise you're going to penalize the very institutions that are com most committed to access. 
And I just jump in there that the we at risk students were one of the metrics, and even if we weight them in one of the current proposals, and I and I would say as a matter of history that uh, when President Wildenthal, Kern Wildenthal, head up headed a commission up for uh, on behalf of, of the state of Texas, and we came up with the performance program, UTEP I think was one of the largest uh, beneficiaries of that program because of it focused on a few metrics, one of which was at risk graduation. So they got they got money for a graduation and an at risk. Many of your students were at risk, and so you benefited. And the better job we did in graduating those at risk students, the better the benefit. And I mean that's the sort of thing, but it needs to be discussed, and it's it's really quite complex. And I think often that's missed. Yeah, so first of all, uh, let me just say I am one hundred percent totally in favor of having outcome based funding because. I've implemented it on our flagship campus. You can write it down. You can Raymond, do it. write it down. <laughs> write it down. But it needs to have two principles, which are extremely important. Number one, it should not have redistributive effect because the purpose should be to force, to incentivize, to persuade institutions to use the funding to the desired outcomes that you want. If it has redistributive effect, which is if you take money from two-thirds of the institution and it's going to the one-third of the institution, I think right there is a serious problem. Second principle, which is very important, and that is a mission-based. You have to honor and respect the missions of different institutions. So let me tell you, within our university, if we could create a fund out-based funding model for colleges that are as different as law and social work, which is only graduate, and College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, which is a different mission. If we can create an outcome-based funding model, it is totally possible for us to do it for the state of Texas. I am told Texas was the first institution to start talking about outcome-based funding model, and now we have 17 states that have it. Come on, it's time. Let's get it done. So how we do it there is we have 11 dif different factors that have been agreed upon. Out of those 11 institutions, based on their mission, they can select eight out of 11. So that allows you to really cater to your, your, your metrics based on what your mission is. And after that, you hold withhold 10% of the funding, and you only give if they are able to meet the, those eight objectives that they have selected. If they're not able to meet, you keep the fund in the central pool, and then you apply toward either university-wide initiatives on a student's success, or you basically force the, 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 the college to put it in that particular direction, and then you give it. But we don't take it from law to give it to liberal, uh, you know, so liberal arts and social sciences. And that really affects us because, and that is that helps us because then, if we want engineering and sciences to do some particular dimension and some measure, they are able to push in that direction. While, you know, other colleges, if they have lower graduation rate, they push in that direction. So everybody pushing the institution toward common goals. Chancellor McCall, do you have something to add? I think it's caused us to do a number of things much better. The discussion of this has caused us to do things better. It's immoral to admit a student that we don't think can make it through the pipeline and have them assume the debt and the failure early in their career. It's very moral for us to do everything we can to admit the right students and do everything we can to mentor and advise them. And this discussion has caused most of us to really focus on advising and mentoring uh, in the past short while. And we've become more creative about looking at who is admitted and who is not. 
not just an SAT or ACT score combined with grades and a predictable answer to a predictable essay question. Um, if a cellist could be a yo-yo ma, if properly identified, even though they don't do well on a particular section of an SAT, it's very <coughs> important to figure that out in the admissions process and get them in, advise them, mentor them throughout the process so that they can become the yo-yo ma. None of us ever in retrospect, want to speak to an admissions counselor and say, why wasn't this student admitted? And they say something like, "This he was just some Joseph looking for a manger. We want to identify those with promise, make sure they get through the, the process, and graduate. And I think it's forced us to be more sophisticated. We have 24,000 or so applicants each year at Texas State for 4,000 freshman positions. And then on top of that, we take 4,000 transfers. We don't want outcomes-based funding to cause us to take 6,500 freshman students and 1,500 transfers, right. Right. Uh, thus manipulating access. And so combined with mentoring, advising, and a more creative admissions process, I think we're going to get where we want to be. Well, and uh, President you're saying uh, I think the... The discussion over the last five, six, seven years on outcomes-based funding has become somewhat of a lightning rod uh, for a lot of debate over higher education. Um, we've got outcomes-based funding. And I can't imagine not having outcomes-based funding. TechSDOT comes for funding and doesn't build any roads or repair any roads. We're going to say, where's the money going? We get money, and we're not going to educate any students. We've got to have outcomes-based funding. Every bit of funding is going to be outcomes-based funding. Um, right now, the outcomes and the measurements are student credit hours, weighted student credit hours, uniformly across the state without looking to mission. To me, the issue is getting the right weight without having these unintended consequences. The access completions is probably the most serious of those. Whatever outcomes-based funding we have has to take into account we need to take risks on students and not just say, well, this one is going to be a better bet for us financially because we know they're going to make it. And we've been going through that debate. I think we've made a lot of progress. <laughs> Chairman's led it. There's been a lot of uh, buy-in, but also debate about that. It's getting the right support going to be important. I think there are two things about the whole funding model, uh, outcomes-based funding. Uh, they've both been mentioned, but I'd emphasize. One is we look at the criteria, but they're the same for every institution without looking at mission. Uh, the chancellor mentioned that a moment ago. I think that is a huge problem. The homogenization of our approaches within systems, within uh, the state, and it's very difficult to granulate that. It's easier to have a homogenized system. Uh, homogenized systems never lead to productivity and, and, uh, and variable outcomes that we're, that we're looking for. I think serious problem that we'll, we'll, have, to, uh, we'll have to solve. Uh, the other is, uh, whether it's on the campus or within the state, uh, and Chancellor Couture mentioned it, uh, but I, I think we need to think through this. There's this sense in outcomes-based funding, if we're going to make progress. 
and and the chairman, uh, you know, 10%, 15%, 20%, we need to go slowly because there will be unintended consequences. We, you know, we can't put all our eggs in that basket right away. We need to ramp into it and see how it, uh, and see how it works. But every time we talk about it, people go back and add up, I'm going to lose a million dollars, you're going to gain $3 million, and it's dead in the water. It happens on our campuses. It happens throughout the state. This idea that we're not ever, we're going to uh, incent people and change our funding model, and it won't ever take money away from anybody. Uh, we'll never make progress that way. Every enterprise that makes progress looks at how it's spending its money and doesn't just say, every level that you currently have, you get, and the only progress we'll make is new money. Well, we haven't had new money. So I think it will end up, I think rightly so, having redistributive effects. That means we have to be very careful about it and very... Uh, cautious about it uh, and not have it have these unintended consequences. But we just don't have enough money in the state to keep going, spending the money the way we've been spending it in the past. And doing it in a homogenized way across the state uh, is totally inefficient. Well, uh, I just wanted to add one, one point uh, of context, and that is let's remember that this whole conversation about incentive funding has been occurring at a time when state appropriations were yep. declining. And that makes the conversation all the more difficult because all of us are feeling the pinch. And so it's, it, if, if state appropriations had remained level or had been growing, then this conversation Absolutely. might have been a little easier to have. Could, could, I, could I add to that? There's a sense that, oh, if we just do it differently, we can avoid having to invest in higher education or public education for that matter. Texas, uh, of, the, of the leading states, uh, invests a much lower percentage of its GDP in higher education. We're not going to compete in the long run if we, can, if we continue to do that. Uh, the American, uh, Academy, American Academy of Arts and Sciences just came out with a study. Uh, the the uh, uh, U.S., in 20 years has gone from second in the world in R&D expenditures to 10th in the world. None of this is going to substitute if people think higher education and public education are important for the future, and I do, we are going to have to Money doesn't do everything, but we can't do it at the level of investment. Well, so finally then, uh, Chairman Branch is forecasting into the next legislative session, which yep. you'll be observing. Uh, do you expect... Uh, <laughs> Do you expect an influx of cash for the universities? Or will they at least get their uh, bonds for uh, uh, campus construction projects, which they haven't gotten since 2006? Yeah, predicting what the Texas legislature will do uh, is a risky business. So um, I think I'll leave that for others. I, I do think there are some, some uh, facts in place. We're going to have some changes in the Senate, obviously a new lieutenant governor and, and some um, uh, many new senators, a slight change in sort of the party alignment there, looks like. And so I think uh, to the extent there's uh, uh, a discussion about outcomes, I think that should, uh, that's, you know, we passed a lot of the transfer bills, a lot of the legislation that we passed in the House has died in the Senate. So I think 
if one's sort of looking at it objectively, there's an opportunity for change uh, in the Senate. And uh, therefore, uh, whether it's the transferability or whether it's outcomes, uh, there, there may be a, a, a little more um, uh, robust uh, uh, opportunity for uh, some get, getting some things done. And, and so uh, I think also you got to look at the, the funding, as was mentioned. And I think uh, we, we, we see uh, largely because of oil and gas revenues and other productivity measures that are strong in the state, we're, we are looking to have a surplus. And we'll have a uh, peers, if we pass our, our uh, constitutional amendment on highways, even then we'll still have about eight, eight and a half billion, 8.4 billion projected in the rainy day fund, the largest ever uh, since since uh, the, the creation, and uh, and an anticipated surplus, uh, you know, strong uh, surplus at uh, this time next year. So uh, there's an opportunity to get some things done, but we have some great challenges. We do know water and roads, and I think education. We got a public finance uh, ruling from a trial court. We got so we'll have an issue on public education finance. I hope we can continue to keep funding for education ahead of health and human services, but that's always uh, a growing uh, uh, pressure on the budget. So I think the, the usual pressures are there, but we do have, it's much better than 2003 or 2009 when we had these tremendous shortfalls and we had to balance the budget and everyone had to take a cut. So I think we're, we're looking at uh, surplus, but growing challenges. And I hope higher ed will step up and get its fair share uh, and, and invest. And we, we've done a better job of keeping our tuitions uh, flatter. And so I think there's been pressure there because, you know, someone could argue, well, we haven't put as much in, but the tuition has gone up dramatically. So, so there's a tension there in trying to get the most for uh, the tuition dollar and the state investment. So on that vaguely hopeful note, we'll, say, <laughs> uh, we'll turn this over to Q&A. So if you have questions, uh, feel free to line up at the mics. Please identify yourself and ask one short question. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, my name is Mike Marshall, and I'm with uh, Texas Christian University. Uh, thank you all for your contributions, certainly insightful. Um, but I'm curious to know what the role of uh, technology has in the access and completion. Thanks. Who wants to take it? Okay. I think very positive. Uh, uh, some people just can't take time out of their out of their life or because of their location uh, to come to a residential university. I think Western Governors University, uh, Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, you know that in and of itself is giving access. There's a lot of uh, uh, controversy about some uh, for profit universities that, uh, you know, are they recruiting people knowing there aren't jobs on the other end and things of that sort? I think it's in its uh, early stages. I think at residential universities, you know, flipped classrooms and uh, giving students experiences off the campus and sort of wrapping them with technology. I think, you know, we're working through those. Uh, it's not just taping lectures so people don't have to get out of their dorm room. A lot of it's very interactive. I, I think it's a positive sign. It's not uh, going to replace, in my view, or ought to replace, the sort of uh, interaction that goes on in a lot of classes. But there's 120 hours. Uh, it doesn't have to be that every class is the same. I think technology is a is a plus. We're learning how to how to how to how to use it. 
may also just add it's a great tool for those who didn't complete. They may have 70 hours. They want to finish the degree, but because of life, it's a good way for them to do it. I would just add that uh, my, my, I'm very enthusiastic about uh, technology because I think it really does level the playing field for a lot of people who might not otherwise have access. But I think the one thing we need to be very careful about is that it is not to be viewed as a low-cost solution for low-income students uh, to just go to a storefront and, and get some, some courses uh, at, a, at a computer. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about that sort of thing, and, and that really is something that I think um, will cheat a, a group of people who have been historically undereducated, and we've got to work really, really hard to ensure that technology becomes a force for them rather than just a way of giving them a certificate that may not, may not be of value. Let's turn it over to the next question over here. Um, my name is Maria Garnett. I work as a researcher here in Austin. And I have a question about student support services. And you, Chancellor McCall, talked about advising and mentoring as a really important tool for helping students succeed. But with a lot of the talk in the policy realm about administrative bloat and things like that, I was just wondering if any of you could speak to which student services in particular have been most effective in helping to get at-risk students to graduate? And how do you keep track of those outcomes at an institutional level? So let, let me take that one. Every way you can support students is really very helpful. But it's not just about providing a support service. It's also having the cultural and paradigm on institution. What does that mean? For instance, you can have an advisor. If the advisor sees her or his job to be in office for you know five hours or 10 hours or, or the whole time and seeing how many people they see, they'll do a phenomenal job without moving the needle. However, if the job is really to make sure that his students coming back, that they are retained, that they are persistent, then the advisor may use chat room, may, may call, may, may have the student come in here. So it's not process, it becomes the goal. I think the institutions have to become obsessed with the goal of completion of college, not necessarily obsessed with strategies, particularly, or pieces. So all of the residence halls that we built now, for instance, we have faculty living in those residence halls with the students. We have the classrooms there. We have free tutorials there. You can come 10 o'clock and you, you can do. And guess what? The students who are most, more at risk really are showing phenomenal success, living there with the GPA, with the progression toward it. So there are probably 20 strategies. I mean, don't they say I'm a vegetarian? I shouldn't say that, but I mean, there are nine ways to kill a cat. And if you, or skin a cat or whatever that is, but. <laughs> but the, but the bottom. Okay, whatever. It depends on what the goal is. Okay, so the bottom line is, if the institution commits to really getting that, that student success as a no excuse priority, and everybody buys into it, you will find one way or another to really get to that. I would just add one thing, engaged faculty. Faculty who understand the mission of the institution and the importance of supporting student success. Let's go over here. Hi, I'm Renee. I'm from Houston, Texas, Sugar Land, and I'm a parent of two children in college right now. My oldest son is a junior at University of Houston, and he's having a great experience. Um, and my, both kids were capped at UT, which I understand that. Um, and I've exported my youngest son, he's a freshman in NYU in Shanghai, another conversation. But for my older son, U of H, he did get a little scholarship, which is wonderful. But, you know, he has the GPA, 
you have to take 15 hours every semester, you have to complete in four years. How, how can you relate that or realign the scholarships to fit the current state where I just heard each of you say it's like four to six years, four and a half, five years. So my question is a scholarship to yes. the current. Very good point. Actually, uh, we have almost doubled the, the scholarships that go for just the academic excellence piece, just in support of, you know, uh, for students. So you're right. I mean, that piece has to come together. All of the advisors are pulled together as well, uh, advisors and recruiters, in the sense that we no longer look for advisors as to what their outcome is. Their outcome is measured by the, the, the whole cohort that they have been given, how many came back next semester to, to, to really um, be reta retained. They get involved in financial aid. They get involved in all kinds of things. And because I give my personal email, I pretty much know what kinds of issues the students are facing because I get thousands, really. And we have a system set up. They know they may not hear it directly from me, but their issue gets, gets resolved within three days. That's my promise. And we have resolved over 2,000 issues about from boyfriend, girlfriend to all the way to, you know, every kind of thing. So... Uh, can, I, can I get your email address? Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have a girlfriend issue? <laughs> no. Uh, so, so, so you're right. I mean, we have, we have scholarships. We have completely revamped the scholarship things. What we don't have is still enough funding. And that's why student scholarships for our you know, campaign is a, is a major, major goal. Because we know the, the kind of student body we serve, that is a big, big piece. And campus jobs, you know, all kinds of things that we are looking. We're looking 20 different strategies, honestly. So thank you very much. I think you have a very smart son, I think. It's a son who's going to U of A. <laughs> very smart son. I, I would just throw in that the Texas grants require yes. uh, 24 hours. You basically, if you don't take summer school, you gotta, you got to at least take 12 hours. When I came into the legislature in the appropriations process, I could, Brian remember calls, there were people were talking about taking this to nine hours. I mean, the, the, the culture was going in the, the opposite direction in, uh, in 2003. And so some of this is, is sort of been just stopping that trend to uh, allowing more and more time at, with the scholarship money flowing to now trying like, the, like our fixed price program where you got to get out. You know, the fixed price only lasts for four years. So we're trying to you know, put these little incentives in place everywhere to think about getting out sooner. Let's go to here. Hi, my name is Alexandra Waldman. I'm a graduate student here at UT Austin. And um, I've actually worked as a TA during my graduate school here. And I wanted to ask you guys about uh, mentoring and guidance for undergraduate students. Because from what I've heard with my interaction and from personal experience, is that there's so there's the students aren't receiving the kind of guidance they need. They're sometimes um, not sure about what classes they need to take or they're not sure about what what order they have to take the classes in and things won't be offered in fall or spring or summer and they get off of their schedule or sometimes they take too many hard courses at the same time and it's something that with a meeting with an advisor who's knowledgeable about the program could have warned them about and then they're overloaded they're not doing well in either class and then they have to drop one and it ruins their whole um, process of being able to graduate on time. So basically I'm asking, could you talk a little bit about how um, students could get better guidance to stay on track so these things don't happen? Well, I can say that that issue has, when, when we set the goal of graduation rates, which is really helping students through the pathway, um, that has been over the last two <coughs> years, three years, 
each focus. So just for example, when a student, when we have orientation, there are a lot of things we need to orient people on, but nothing more than this kind of mindset and give them pathways and, and good advice on if you, if you make a change in your sophomore year, you should have done this and you should do this in your freshman year so you have more options in your sophomore year. I, I think this is the focus that is, yes, it's mentoring, and we need to do that as well. And the student that has the problem, they're struggling, and, and we help them. And, and those programs are critically important. But the, the kind of roadmap advice that you're talking about, I think, uh, especially at large universities, is the biggest obstacle to graduating on time, whatever that, whatever that means. The, college, the School of Undergraduate Studies, and that's what they're about, is to give this kind of advice. I, I, I think you're identifying the lever that can make the most uh, immediate impact on students being able to navigate uh, in a timely manner. Just, the other thing is uh, we've got to simplify the pathway. Right? If there are 185 pathways and you get on the wrong road, it's hard to find your way back to the road. There's just got to be more flexibility in uh, what counts as that requirement in the major or whatever. Well, we have about two or three minutes left, so if we could just make these very, very quick, maybe we can hit all of them. We we'll, might not be able to, but we'll try to. If we can. Um, three words or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's quick. Uh, my name is Raleigh Cole. My qualification for being here is that my younger daughter took nine years to get her, her BA. But the quick question is, the University of New Mexico has a program I was told about that had a tremendous difference in dropout rates by switching from upping the scholarships to a just-in-time microloan program so that students' car breaks down or they need to go see the doctor and don't have that amount of money. And I wonder if any of you have had any experience. The challenge for you all is that a lot of the solutions are not academic, right? They're girlfriends right. or, in this yeah. case, need, needing $200 now you have to drop out. So I'm wondering about <clears throat> microloan programs and other non-academic programs to help. About 71% of students who say they drop out, drop out primarily because of work-related reasons. And so I, I don't know that I'm answering your question, but I'm putting a context in as to why the students go away. So I don't know. We don't. Uh, it's a good idea, though. I'll look into it if we don't have one. Thank you. Next question. Hello. Uh, my name is Marty Harvey, and I teach a freshman writing class at UT Arlington. And my students come in, and they're off, they often tell me that they've been told in school, to, to in high school, to get ready for college. So they come in somewhat college-ready. But they also have been given this mixed message that college is a place to find yourself. So they think they have time to find themselves, yet we're pushing them into a four and a half year graduation, you know, time frame. What do we do about that message? How do you get students to find themselves quicker? <laughs> exactly. Well, at private exactly. universities, they find themselves uh, in complete uh, <laughs> at, at near ninety percent levels in four years. So, whether they find themselves or not, I don't know. But. <laughs> 
by former students that, and they wish they had gone into something else. I think finding yourself is an important part of going to college. The idea that 17-year-olds know what they want to do when they're 25. Right. So I think that's a very important part of it. The School of Undergraduate Studies, those students go into that. And then what we need to do is have a freshman year where they're not pretending that they've made that choice, make a change, and go back and have to enter the door uh, the first time through. But that we take those students and have a first three-semester experience that keeps them on track and uh, uh, gives them that flexibility and time and advice uh, to find themselves. I, I, I don't think those are incompatible at all if we do it right. All right, really quick, unless it's a girlfriend question. <laughs> um, I'm Josh Levine, I'm on Moody's higher education team. Um, I have a question about, there's a recent study by the Education Advisory Board that showed 50% of dropouts are coming from students with GPAs 2.0 to 3.0, 2.8 range. Is there a, an amount of targeting that's being done with some of these programs in terms of finding specific students that are more at risk of dropping out than others? And if so, what students are you targeting with those programs? Maybe that's too long of a question for one minute. But. If you could identify the students you're targeting with your student support services. Well, we're doing quite a lot of that, uh, actually trying to study our own student population and, and segmenting our, stu our entering students by quartiles of, of uh, rank, class rank, and that sort of thing. And then looking at them as they move their way through and looking at interventions that are associated with that. Uh, I think that has great promise, uh, targeting students in, in ways that um, are, are aligned with the kinds of challenges that they bring uh, to the institution. So I, I think that a lot of the analytics that are becoming available, we're involved with EAB, and, and I think it's just very, very helpful. And it engages the faculty in a way that I think hasn't been done because it's intellectually quite stimulating. So uh, I think it's a very important dimension of, of the availability now of data through technology and, and um, access to that data. I think we have recently uh, started a program where, um, based on survey, which is frequent survey, you can um, get early signals of a student's academic stress, financial stress, or social stress. And based on that, then you try to, to, to intervene and try to see how you can help before a student even knows that they're in trouble or they come to you. So institutions are doing a quite a bit of that. Yeah. Right, let's try to knock out this last question. <laughs> yes. Domino Perez, uh, director of the Center for Mexican-American Studies at UT Austin and Texas State alum. Uh, a recent report came out, and I think we're familiar with this data, that uh, for the first time, Hispanic children make up the majority in Texas school of the Texas school population. I, I know that uh, University of Houston and UTEP certainly have sizable Latino populations. UT has around 70%. I was wondering what you're doing to prepare for the influx of huge numbers of Latino students and what you can do to help them in particular uh, graduate successfully on time. Thank you. Well, currently 80% 80, 80 of our student population is Latino, undergraduate student population. And we've been working for the past 25 years on a vertically integrated um, pre-K through 16 uh, trajectory. We work with the school districts and the community college in El Paso. And so we've been working very hard on college readiness, 
uh, early college high schools, dual credit, every kind of, of preparation that we can achieve some kind of strengthening uh, of aspirations and, and achievement. Um, students who are coming to us now are coming from high schools that never used to send a single student to, to UTEP because those schools never believed that the students in those schools were college material. We've changed totally the attitudes. I think attitudes and confidence of school personnel about the children who are enrolled in those schools and <clears throat> understanding better the challenges that they face, that the fact that they're absent may not be because they don't care about school, but something else. We've got to change the culture of the schools. And I think we've made a lot of progress on that front in El Paso, obviously uh, a highly Hispanic community and therefore a lot of experience. But I think the lessons learned are valuable um, in many other settings. And we're going to have to cut it off there, I'm afraid. President Adelicio, President Powers, Chancellor McCall, Chancellor Couture, and Chairman Branch, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for coming. There's another panel coming up in just a bit on community colleges, so stick around for that.